Welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week. Borrowing that the image of the family photo of Europe, you know, some of those family members actually don't share the same values. Hungary and Poland, namely. What do you do in a presidency, you know, where you've literally got two guys um, who are absolutely on a different side of the page or the, or the road on terms of human rights and values and actually democratic values. What can a presidency do about these kinds of issues? I think and I'm convinced that uh, the most important task of the presidency is still ahead of it. And it will be uh, to do the maximum for uh, keeping the EU unity and solidarity. The war in Ukraine um, has changed many things. One of the things it's changed is this recognition that, you know, it really is about geopolitics uh, and that the EU can no longer just be content to be a soft power. A very warm welcome to all our listeners to this week's episode of Frankly Speaking, Friends of Europe's podcast where we talk about issues of politics and economics and society with a range of contributors from across the public, private and civil society sector. Today, we're going to be discussing the issue of the Czech presidency and the implications of the Ukraine war that continues to have a bite on prices, livelihoods, and societies. I'm very pleased to be able to welcome uh, senior uh, fellow Paul Taylor, but also in particular our guest uh, Tomas Petricek, former foreign secretary of the Czech Republic. Thank you both for joining us to have this conversation on big topic items which are not necessarily easy to unravel or to deal with, but we hope to get your insight and your uh, expertise to address some of the big topics of what will be on the agenda for the Czech Republic presidency, but also how do we maintain unity and what do we do about disunity and the move to the right in Europe? My name is Domendra Kanani, Chief Spokesperson, and I have the pleasure to be speaking to Tomas Petricek, former Foreign Secretary of Czech Czechoslovakia, and Paul Taylor, our Senior Fellow. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Czech matters, and in that, we're going to talk about the Czech presidency, as well as can Europe keep it together in the context of the ongoing invasion of, uh, of Ukraine and the Russian war and the implications of energy prices and economic livelihoods um, into the future? It's very clear uh, the, the prices are biting and we can see that inflation is increasing and everybody is gearing up to raise interest rates. What is going to be the impact of all of this on the Czech presidency? So a very warm welcome to you, Tomas. It would be really helpful to us to understand what you understand, what what you understand as being the key priorities of the presidency. But in your answer, share with us how you feel that the Czech presidency will continue some of the uh, priorities from the French presidency. Over to you. Uh, good morning, Damendra. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for inviting me uh, for the podcast. I would uh, kick off by stressing that uh, the Czech presidency uh, and its priorities since agenda has been largely determined by the uh, complex uh, of crises the uh, uh, European Union is facing right now. We are still uh, facing the post-COVID or uh, post-pandemic recovery. Uh, and uh, in addition, since uh, the February, uh, we are facing uh, the impacts of uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, 
uh, and uh, energy and inflation crisis, which is, both are very much interlinked. Um, if uh, the presidency uh, prepared for relatively normal agenda uh, at the end of uh, 2021, it has uh, to adapt uh, very, very quickly and uh, focus largely uh, on uh, the direct uh, impacts uh, of uh, Ukraine war uh, on Europe, uh, both in terms of uh, uh, security implications and in terms of uh, refugee crisis, uh, refugee uh, influx into Europe, uh, which has uh, taken place uh, in the first half of uh, this year. The second, uh, I would stress uh, that the, the presidency uh, started to focus more and more on the uh, energy crisis uh, in August uh, and now in September, uh, with uh, two council meetings uh, dedicated uh, uh, to common approach uh, uh, to the crisis and uh, also trying to uh, identify possible uh, common uh, responses uh, at the European level. But uh, I, I think and I'm convinced that uh, the most important task of the presidency is still ahead of it. And it will be uh, to do the maximum for uh, keeping the EU unity and solidarity. Uh, during okay, the autumn, come back. yes, go on. I'm sorry, let you finish. During the autumn and uh, and uh, during uh, difficult winter uh, that is ahead of us, I think this will be two key issues. Uh, and uh, you ask about uh, what uh, the presidency is taking over from the French presidency. Uh, I believe that uh, largely uh, these are topics, uh, these are issues related to uh, the Ukrainian crisis and uh, uh, to uh, energy transformation and energy security issues uh, that has been already launched during the French presidency, such as uh, Repower EU and how to uh, decrease our dependence on uh, Russian fossil fuels. Let me turn to you, Paul, if I may now. Do you think there's any point in having these presidencies? Do you think they actually move the policy agenda forward? You're a journalist. You've been covering this scene uh, for many decades. Um, is it just the artifice of the European project or is there any point in these presidencies? Well, over the 40 years that I've been writing about European affairs, um, the, 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 the role of the presidency has been somewhat reduced. Uh, because the central institutions of the European Union, uh, the Commission, uh, uh, the, the, the Council, and above all, the uh, creation of a European Council and a European Council President have really um, uh, diminished that role. It's the European Council President now who chairs all EU summits. Uh, it's the um, uh, uh, High Representative for Foreign Security Policy, who chairs the Foreign Affairs Council and so on. So that reduces the role. Um, the, uh, and uh, the chairman of the Eurogroup chair, chairs the most important meetings of the financial uh, finance ministers. So um, it's true that the, the role of the presidency has been diminished. There's an important role of the presidency, I think, for the visibility of the EU in the member states. You know, that it's, uh, it's our six months in the spotlight. That's really important, and it makes people feel more involved in the EU. Um, there's a value of the presidency in helping to find compromises, uh, particularly in the sectoral councils where you don't have a, a, a full-time uh, chairman um, or chairperson. 
Um, so that makes a difference. And then I think the other thing, I mean, it was more visible when EU summits in the old days were a traveling circus, that there would be, uh, you know, most uh, uh, of the EU summits would take place in the, in, uh, in the member state that had the presidency. So it was an opportunity to showcase that member state. I must say that, you know, I discovered some countries I didn't know as a result of covering this presidency and then returned as a tourist and so on. So, uh, but, you know, that gave them visibility. That's less the case now, but what it does do, I think, is to uh, uh, still give the attachment the dream of And, you know, th there's also, when a big member state has the presidency, there's, you know, there tends to be big expectations uh, when a country like Germany or France has the presidency, because there's a presumption that they have the power, the, the, the heft to drive stuff through. Where you get problems is where, uh, the country that holds the presidency is really an outlier in, in, with, with some strong interest that they want to push. Um, we saw that a little bit, I think, with Slovenia under Jansha, um, and I hope we won't see it under uh, the Czech Republic. But, for example, right now we have a discussion which is just beginning about whether we can go uh, get, get away from the unanimity rule in a lot of EU decision-making. Well, the Czech Republic uh, has a prime minister who was very much in defense of uh, uh, unanimity and saying that the EU must not become some sort of distant bureaucratic body that overrules. And I think uh, for that point of view, uh, you know, a, a presidency holder can also perhaps play a role in slowing things down and in, uh, in trying to push sideline some issues that might otherwise be on the agenda. Paul, thank you very much. Um... What's clear, I mean, using your metaphor of uh, a dog in the fight, um, in terms of the, uh, going back to you, Thomas, there's the first meeting of the European political community in Prague in October. Um, what's, what's your sense of what will come out of that? When we think about what Paul said, but also the, the key issues that you've identified, which are uh, across Europe, that we know we need to do something urgently, um, Given the stakes, should Turkey also be invited? What's your view? Uh, Darmendra, uh, actually, uh, European political community, it's uh, another uh, initiative uh, that uh, the Czech presidency has to take over from the, uh, from the French, French presidency. Uh, it has been very much uh, initiative of uh, President Macron. And uh, here the presidency has to play its role of uh, honest broker uh, because uh, uh, the position of uh, the Czech uh, foreign policy and Czech, uh, uh, Czech government is uh, that uh, we should focus more on the regular enlargement process as a vehicle to integrate uh, countries of the Western Balkan and Eastern Europe uh, to the EU and uh, not necessarily to look for alternatives. And uh, I think it will be very much the role of the presidency uh, to find out a way how to avoid misinterpretation uh, among some of the partners that the European political community is something to replace enlargement. Uh, at the same time, I see it as an opportunity uh, to uh, be more flexible and more creative uh, regarding some more complicated partners, especially Turkey. And you have mentioned that uh, there are some, uh, some uh, controversies about whether the Turkey should be invited or not. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, if the EU is to be a geopolitical actor, 
I think we need to be also uh, sometimes pragmatic. We have to acknowledge that uh, Turkey has distanced itself uh, uh, from the EU over the past years, that uh, the situation of uh, uh, rule of law, uh, individual freedoms, uh, freedoms of uh, media in Turkey is uh, deteriorating. We have to be vocal about that, but uh, we have to be vocal when discussing with, with uh, such an important partner uh, such as Turkey. Very well said. Um, let me turn to you, Paul, if I may now. Um, you, you're obviously the author of our study, the study on murky waters. Uh, so you've documented, uh, you know, the kind of relationship with Turkey and what happens in that geopolitical basin. But you know, from your your perspective. The same question, you know, what, what do you expect to come out of this European political community, uh, a beast that's been created by Macron, uh, but also on the Turkey question briefly, please? Yes, yeah, so I think, it, you know, it's an opportunity to bring uh, countries that are, are difficult partners into the room for a discussion, preferably a fairly freewheeling discussion without, you know, just people bringing talking points uh, about the big strategic issues. And I think um, if the EU is to be a strategic actor, um, you know, the, in, in a way, the, the war in Ukraine um, has changed many things. One of the things it's changed is this recognition that, you know, it really is about geopolitics uh, and that the EU can no longer just be content to be a soft power and that the EU, in a way, has a responsibility for the whole of Europe that is... Um, uh, west of Russia, um, to, 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 to a significant extent, even though no, they're not members, they're all in different kinds of relationship with the EU, many of them on their way towards membership, eventual membership. And therefore, this is an opportunity to bring them together. And frankly, also for political visibility. You know, the fact is that although Turkey has been a, a candidate for EU membership for, you know, uh, more than 20 years and has been in negotiations for almost 20 years, um, uh, you know, the, the summits between the EU and Turkey have been exceptionally rare. Nobody wanted to be seen on the same photograph as uh, Erdogan. So just that family photograph, like the family photograph of Putin and his fellow um, autocrats uh, at the Shanghai Corporation, uh, meeting in, in, in Uzbekistan, I think, you know, we need our photo as well of, and I, I hate to say it, but let's say free Europe in some way. Um, and uh, does Turkey belong in the free category? For all those reasons, I think we need to try and keep him inside the tent um, and on our side, while at the same time being clear about what we won't accept. Thank you very much for that, Paul. I you want to come back on that, but I also want you to think about borrowing that the image of the family photo of Europe, you know, uh, which is really quite uh, quite stark in the way you describe it, Paul. Some of those family members actually don't share the same values, Hungary and Poland, namely. What do you do in a presidency, you know, where you've literally got two guys um, who are absolutely on a different side of the page or the, or the road on terms of human rights? and values, and actually democratic values. What can a presidency do about some of this? So Thomas, difficult questions I know, but it'll be really, I think helpful to our listeners to understand what can a presidency do about these kinds of issues? I think that the crisis on, uh, in Ukraine has uh, moved the Czech government uh, to be much more vocal uh, on uh, uh, 
democratic principles, uh, rule of law, and uh, uh, key values of the European Union, uh, it is one of the five priorities to defend uh, democratic uh, values and principles uh, of, uh, of the EU. The presidencies uh, tend to avoid, uh, on a regular basis, uh, some uh, controversial and uh, difficult situations. They don't see an option for them to mediate or to sort out. And uh, this is actually one of them. Uh, I think that at the moment, uh, the presidency is not very eager uh, to engage with both uh, uh, Hungary or Poland uh, on uh, issues of rule of law, Article 7, uh, or democratic principles in general. Uh, but at the same time, it tries to uh, differentiate. Um, so very often we tend to see Hungary and Poland as having the very, very same problems and uh, to put, it, uh, put them in one basket. And uh, I think it is not always uh, useful because if you corner both countries at the same time, they, they tend to ally strongly. While now uh, you, we have seen that uh, because of the different reaction in Warsaw and in Budapest on uh, the war uh, Putin uh, launched, uh, the two countries uh, have separated. They are no longer as close partners, as close allies in the US they used to be. And I think it is an opportunity for the presidency to, uh, to push some issues, for example, on the uh, uh, rule of law situation in Poland. But I'm afraid it is not uh, taking place or it is not very intensive. And uh, still, the presidency is leaving very much the whole issue of the uh, internal uh, defense of e-values to the European Commission. Well said. Let me turn to you, Paul, if I may now. In the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about the implications um, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, the energy uh, crisis that we have. And I think what we're now living through is the crisis of livelihoods. We have seen most recently as a result of what's happening in relation to energy and the crisis in livelihoods, 70,000 people marched in Prague. And we've seen similar movements in the east, but elsewhere, you can feel the tension on the street. Um, what do you think, Paul, needs to happen if we are to uh, get through the winter without chaos and anarchy? Well, and we've seen that a lot of these uh, problems are, are being tackled at national level uh, rather than at EU level. So I think we have to distinguish between what national governments can do and what the EU collectively can do. Um, uh, that dis distinction may not always be easy. The EU may easily get blamed uh, for things which are actually uh, shortcomings at national level. But yeah, I mean, first of all, obviously, many countries are subsidizing, those that are able to, are subsidizing fuel bills for their population. Some are doing it as a scattergun subsidizing for everybody. I mean, when I go and fill up my car at the moment uh, at the petrol station, the French government is paying uh, part of my uh, part of every liter of petrol I put in my car. Um, does that make sense economically? I don't know, you know. Uh, I, I think it would uh, targeted measures would make more sense uh, that would target to people 
uh, low-income people who are dependent on their cars to, to get to work and so on. And there are ways of doing that. But um, uh, the, those sorts of issues are around. And you see it not only in the EU, but in the UK, which has left the EU, but is doing, in fact, very similar sorts of things. What the EU can do, which is hugely important, is to improve uh, uh, collect is to look at collective purchases of energy, which are particularly important, in fact, for the smaller member states that don't necessarily have the bargaining power in dealing with energy suppliers that the big countries do. So some kind of framework where for collective purchases through which then individual member states or companies make their own purchases would, would be helpful. Number two, we've got to speed up. I mean, this is not rocket science. 15 years ago, we said we were going to build more interconnectors after the, the first Ukraine gas crisis. Some of them are still not completed. You know, now there are places where vested interests have been dragging their feet to ensure they don't get completed. Um, I think of one between Greece and Bulgaria, which, you know, has been you know, an issue forever because the, the Russian gas lobby in Bulgaria didn't want it built. Um, and you have similar sorts of issues around uh, Central and Southeastern Europe. Um, and now the, those things must change, but also between France and Spain, for example. You know, it's a, it's a scandal how few interconnectors there are for gas and electricity across the Pyrenees. And the French uh, say they're doing this for environmental protection reasons and for, uh, because of the, the cost of such things, which they think is not justified, but in fact, um, you know, everybody else suspects that there's deep French protectionism in this, that they simply want to uh, protect their, their electricity monopoly, EDF, and so on. So um, that's got to change. And that's something that the EU can and must address. And it can be addressed with EU money. Um, and the, where, where the EU has power, we see it also on, on, on human rights and the, right, and the rule of law, is that the EU has money which countries want uh, which can either help them to complete projects that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do, but also you, it can withhold that money. Thank you, Paul, for those wise words and insight. I now want to turn to Thomas for final views and thoughts. Uh, we've heard, you know, of, of Paul being extremely eloquent about some of the issues there. I want you to kind of conclude this podcast with, you know, reference to two questions. One. Paul set out a sort of a, a set of agenda items, uh, you know, collective purchasing power, using conditionality more effectively and moving with agility and speed to get things done that have been in the pipeline for some time, but also perhaps having an industrial scale uh, uh, approach to renewables and solar energy, etc. Um, there's that. So is that going to be item one on the agenda for the Czech presidency? I agree with... Um... The analysis uh, Paul has just uh, portrayed, uh, um, the EU is going to face a very difficult uh, situation. And uh, certainly, uh, some key initiatives uh, will need to take place uh, during the Czech presidency, the, end, the second part of the Czech presidency. Uh, we will need to move ahead with uh, common purchases. Uh, unfortunately, I have se haven't seen much of the progress uh, since uh, it has been first uh, mentioned uh, uh, in the proposals of the European Commission uh, already in March, April, uh, this spring. Uh, but this is a way how to show the added value of the European Union to European citizens, as we did during the COVID crisis with uh, uh, joint purchases of, uh, of vaccines. Because uh, for a smaller state, actually, it would be much more difficult 
to get a hand on uh, um, substantial uh, deliveries uh, on time without uh, very close cooperation uh, with other European partners. And it is the same right now when it uh, comes to the gas and, uh, and, and oil, because uh, we will need to uh, diversify very fast from uh, Russian uh, fossil fuel supplies, especially in the Central and Eastern European region, because uh, the dependency here is much higher. I would add to what Paul said that uh, there are two issues uh, at stake. Uh, I have already mentioned in the, in the first comment that uh, not only the practical solutions uh, to the crisis uh, will be expected and will be needed from the presidency. It will be very much also about uh, keeping the political unity uh, intact. Um, once individual member states will try to uh, go their way, uh, look for their individual uh, solutions. Uh, and we have seen already some attempts um, regarding, for example, uh, deals with, uh, with Russia on, uh, on uh, gas supplies. We will have a huge problem my goodness, um, I have to say, you really need to get back into politics. We need more of that kind of thinking and articulation that, you know, is able to really deeply reflect on difficult questions. And there you are, you know, I think you set out a menu, a choice of issues that we should really be focusing on, especially as the Conference of the Future of Europe takes hold, that these are the kind of questions and issues that we should be really tackling. Thank you both for your time, your energy, your wisdom and insight. Um, and, you know, those of you for, who've been listening, thank you very much. We hope this has been stimulating, thoughtful and made you think about those big topics, which are and items which are not going to go away. They're not easy, but that's why we have this kind of discussion. We need to talk things through and hear from those experts and those who've been in the field uh, as to how we might move uh, a progressive agenda for Europe forward. Thank you both. And thank you to our listeners. Tune in next week, but also go to our website if you want to have further information about some of our events, some of our publications, but also the next podcast. I can say to those of you, those of you interested in Turkey matters and strategic autonomy, our sixth episode uh, on the 11th of October will be focusing on Turkey quite precisely to unpick some of those issues further. Thank you all very much for listening and take care. Goodbye. That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast. Consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week. <laughs>